um, Susan Perlman said that she would be willing to come and give a presentation on the Passover. And so next week she'll be coming and presenting uh, kind of a, a description of the symbolism and what goes on in the minds of the, the Jewish people during this time of Passover. Uh, and I think you'll find it a very um, moving uh, opportunity for us to, to learn and to grow and to get a grasp of a, of a cultural uh, involvement with God that is experienced by the Jewish people through the Passover. So I, I, I hope that uh, you will be here and be able to encourage others. Um, today, we're going to continue with our, uh, we have I think three more weeks, I'm trying to get through Revelation, to at least say we've had a glimpse of it. Now you know and I know, the challenge with Revelation is there are multiple interpretations. There are different ways to view certain parts of it. And so we're just doing our best to get some kind of a, um, an exposure. Uh, and so last, uh, the last time we looked at Revelation, which because we have different things going on in our church and different people speaking and different uh, things happening, uh, it, it's not a weekly kind of study that we've been going through. It's been sort of every other week or whenever it was the next opportunity. And for that I apologize, but I also am thankful because we do have so many other people who have been serving and working in different ways. But we, we looked at chapter 17, and it was talking about the, the not necessarily, well, let's just say it was describing the destruction ultimately of the city of Babylon. Now, when we talk about the city, we're also talking about the system. We're talking about a kind of theological uh, relationship, uh, if you will, between God and uh, the people that were represented in the city of Babylon. Because uh, in that particular part of the scripture, it was dealing with the system of religion. It was referring to the term uh, adultery. And it used the word prostitution. It used words that are quite... Um, strong for our society. They represent a lot of things in our mind, but ultimately God was trying to remind us that if we do not treat Him appropriately, we're taking Him down to a level in His relationship with us where He doesn't want to be, nor does He deserve to be. But it's our sin that takes Him there. And so when it talks about the adulterous relationship of the way that people treated God by going and worshiping other gods, by serving other gods. Uh, the intent is to, intended to be very, very strong for us. It's intended for us to evaluate how we treat God. You know, so many of us, we treat God as a, a Sunday morning, one-hour experience where we go to a church, and the rest of the week, we may or may not allow Him to truly help us in our decision-making. God doesn't want to be treated that way, nor does He deserve to be. So chapter 17 goes through and it describes the destruction of a system that has is, is become uh, so much in control of the lives of the people of Babylon. Now we remember as we look at the book of Revelation that the church 
The Christians have been raptured and are not part of that particular system at that point. And yet there are, according to Scripture, some people who have made decisions, even during those difficult, difficult times, they have still repented and become Christians. So there are still a few Christians floating around who have made decisions during this seven-year tribulation period of time. And today we're going to be looking at chapter 18 as well as a little bit into chapter 19. Chapter 18 is dealing also with a system, and it's looking at the economic and political power of the city of Babylon. So the religious part of it has already been dealt with in description in chapter 17. And chapter 18 deals with the fact that that city was corrupt in its politics and in its economy in every way. And it goes through and gives a description of the reason for some of the destruction that is going to be coming toward them. Um, Chapter 18 describes an influential city during the last days, and it's the center of, re- of religion. In chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 2 and 3, it's a haunt for demons and adulteries. Now, when we talk about theology, we're not necessarily talking about following of God. We're talking about gods. And those gods, some of the time, are man-made. And they're very much man-made in the sense of materialistic things, not just idols specifically. Um, Verses 4 to 8 talks about the persecutor of the saints. Give her as much torture and grief as she treated toward you. So it's saying that that the, the punishment that's going to come is going to be pretty significant. And it's going to be in turn for how they have acted and functioned in their attitude toward God in the past. Verses 3 as well as verse 9 refers to the kings. These are people of power and prestige. That they also will have seen their day. They may have had power. They may have had prestige. And I don't know how much contact you've been with people in various business uh, ventures. But there are so many who are so wrapped up in building their own kingdoms that indeed God is certainly not in their main path. And it's also in verse 11 talks about the economic hub of the world, the merchants and the sea captains in verse 17. So we look at the scripture today for the purpose of exegesis. Now you know there's a term exegesis and eisegesis. Frankly speaking, I'll tell you this before we ever look at this. To me, I'm always nervous about exegesis, not because it's not what we're supposed to do. Exegesis is correct. That's to draw the truth from the scripture. It's to learn and to draw it and to try to grow from it to grasp the deeper meaning. Eisegesis is to place your own values, your own ideas into the Scripture and say, see, this justifies what I'm doing. The problem is, sometimes I've heard people who have, with the perfectly good intent of exegeting, drawing out the truth, in fact, they were eisegeting. They were placing their own ideas and dreams into the thing. And so, one of the reasons that I have great respect for Scripture is that Scripture basically was written with the, with the, um, the wisdom of God, with the idea that men over the years, much more learned than myself, have gone through and translated and worked through the basic meanings of the Scripture. Not in every case perfect by any means, These men are working as hard as they could to try to find 
the basic truth of what the Scripture had to say. And so the meaning is found there. As they looked at the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and worked on trying to come up with a clarification, I have great respect for that. So as we look, we're going to be trying to look at what are the things we can learn from it. But what I want to say to you and me is, some of the times we can, if we're not careful, spend so much time trying to go into a deeper understanding of Scripture that we go past the obvious. The Scripture's not hiding all of its truth to where you can't find it. So, so often the Scripture's truth is right there and available to us, but we just don't know how or we're quite not ready to allow ourselves to be changed by it. Let's look at chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. 18, chapter 1. Now, this section, uh, it, it's basically a warning or a clarification from heaven. It's a warning or a Now, warning for most of us is a word that we think of as somebody saying something, be careful or this is going to happen. This clarification is not that way. This scripture is a little bit different. 18.1 says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. This is spiritual illumination. Not for man to repent, but for clarification. In essence, it's kind of ask, answering a little bit of that why me question that we often ask in our world. Even in these days, there appears to be those that still somehow thought they were so, so capable, so skilled, that they, they still couldn't quite grasp what was going on. And you've got to remember, we're now down to chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. Chapter 18, we've already moved through John's vision where he's out on this island of Patmos and he's seen and learned about these churches. He's learned what it's like in heaven for the, the, the four beasts and the 24 elders as they do worship and they bow and they praise and they sing songs. He's, he's already seen the, the punishments of the many different, the signs, the plagues, the, the bowls, the various things that come along. He has seen what's going to happen. And he's already presented all of these, quite honestly, terrible things in describing that God is a just and righteous God. He's already aware of all that. And he's already described that to all these people. And still, as we get to chapter 17 and chapter 18, in the midst of Armageddon, a time when finally God is saying, it's over. My idea now of giving you a warning is just letting you know what's coming up. It's an announcement. It's not a warning saying that you can do anything now. It's too late. The days are gone by. I gave you every opportunity possible to repent. You never even admitted my existence. And still, according to Scripture in chapter 81, there was still illumination. These people still didn't get it. Even to this point. 18.2, with a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. Now, bird also refers to demons. You'll remember that the problem, you know, last week we were talking about Pilate and we were talking about his judgment of Christ. 
But, you know, we also discussed Pilate's basic character trait was that he was very, very selfish, very, very interested in security, and primarily he was a man of ambition. When we look at this, we can see that these were people, also people of ambition. The evil spirits and the unclean birds of Babylon represent the same type of focus in their lives of many other people who are ambitious for, who, for why they are in their role. Babylon is known for compromise with religions of uh, other faiths and whatever was required to be defined as successful. The warning was kind of a declaration by God of what happens when man's focus is strictly on himself. Is our city, is our society doing any better today? Politically and economically, is our society prepared to meet God? You know, I read this scripture and I know it's easy for us to fall into the trap of saying, yeah, but this is John's vision just talking about the future. This is a prophetic note of the future. But when I read this scripture, I keep having to pull out that spiritual mirror and look at myself and say, in our day, in our society, are there not things we can learn as well? And when I look at this, and I see fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She's become the home of demons and a haunt for every evil spirit. I can't help but ask myself, what is the world we're in today? Are we any better? 18.3, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. God's warning or announcement is very clear regarding His expectation for us. You know, if we'll remember Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13, it says that the primary duty of man, our number one duty, fear God, obey His commands. Hygamthini. So simple. But that's what it is. Fear God, obey His commands. And we don't do it. You know, we can't even, in, 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 with, with a plain, honest face, admit that we, we already know the truth. Well, ah, God, well, we don't quite understand, God. We don't quite get it. I'm sorry, folks, it's not hard to understand. Respect God and obey His commands. It's very clear. But we somehow have managed not to do that. The warnings are specifically for the lost of those days. But we surely can see the dangers of ignoring what God wants for us as well. We may say, but we have not committed adultery with the sins of Babylon. For that is just a future problem. But is that really only a future problem or is that a problem we experience today? Do we not treat God as something less than primary in our decision making? Do we not have responsibility for the lives that we live here? When God is ignored and not honored by our behavior and service, does the name of the city that we're really in make any difference? Whether it's called Babylon, New York, or Vancouver. If we act in private or in public, is God honored by our behavior and dedication? Or is He saddened at what He is seeing? That is our challenge. That is your challenge. 
We need to learn from what John is presenting about the future. 18.4 Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of here, my people. Come out of her, my people. So that you will not share in her sins. So that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven. And God has remembered her crimes. There will not be a lot of Christians in those days. Because, indeed, the church will have already been raptured. And yet, they were still warned to remove themselves. The ones that were there saying, get out of the middle of being in, in, a, in an environment where you're totally surrounded by sinful values. This is certainly a challenge to our day, as we too have to wrestle with how much we compromise with the strength of being a strong Christian witness, which we need to be, or whether there are times we need to walk away and just admit, this is not the environment I need to be in. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, 7, or in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, 14, verse 14 to 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, it refers to and talks about the issue of intermarriage. It's presented uh, in a very strong way, presenting that Christians and non-Christians are indeed not an ideal marriage by any means, by God's standard. Um, it goes on and it describes some of the dangers. It doesn't say you're, you're a horrible person for making that call, but it's going on to explain that there are dangers for any legal or binding relationship between a Christian and non-Christian. The concern is that the binding of a Christian and a non-Christian will lead to a Christian eventually compromising with the world and not obeying Christ as his Lord and Savior. King Agrippa, you know, in chapter 26 of Acts, uh, talked about, uh, as he was listening to the presentation that was coming to him about Paul's relationship with Christ, he said, almost you would persuade me even to become a Christian. But you know, the truth is, brothers and sisters, almost is never good enough with God. There is no such thing as a chum dog gate octo. I'm a more or less Christian. You either are or you're not. God knows our hearts, and if we are truly obedient, is quite different than being almost obedient. When I was young, I can remember many of my friends that I ran around with, a lot of my good friends, were what they would call almost Christians. They would go on Sunday to church, but their walk with Christ was never consistent. God is warning the Christians of Revelation, as we should learn as well, that remaining in the middle of a sinful environment could result in the sharing of those sins that they commit. Folks, we have to be careful with the lives we live. It doesn't mean we don't need to care for them, but we need to do things with intention. If we are with non-Christians, that's a good thing. But we need to be there because we're trying to help and we have clarity. But if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves compromising and being swallowed up. There's nothing new under the sun. Babylon has a history of being disobedient toward God. In Jeremiah 51, verses 6 to 9, there's a description that sounds almost identical to this. 
Flee out of the midst of Babylon and deliver every man his soul. Be not cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He will render unto her a recompense. Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken her wine, therefore the nations are mad. Babylon has suddenly fallen and destroyed. Howl for her, take balm for her pain. If so, be she were to be healed. We have healed Babylon, but she is not healed. Forsake her and let us go, everyone into his own country. For her judgment reaches into heaven and is lifted up even to the skies. The sins of Babylon in the Old Testament weren't changed by the time we read the book of Revelation. The pride of sin continued to be in control of their lives. Now, I don't know what the thoughts are in your mind when you think of politics and power and economics. And you think of the things in our world that you know are sinfully being done. You know, here in in Canada, I keep hearing the term um, reconciliation referred to many, many different things. You would have definition for that that I would not have. My definitions tend to go back to China. My definitions might go back some to the USA. But you have to recognize that in our country, even here, there are those who play games with God, who are involved in politics, who are involved in economics. And they might even very well use the name of God in a public environment. But as far as in all reality, allowing God to lead their decision making, probably not. 18.6, give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion for her own cup. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave. In her heart she boasts, I sit as queen. I am not a widow and I will never mourn. Therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning and famine. She will be consumed by fire for mighty is the Lord who judges her. There will be judgment, and God will make that judgment. Under the law, Israel would be able to give a double judgment for any rebellion. Israel and the Christian church have had their suffering, and now it's time for God's enemies to be punished. What are Babylon's sins that we can learn from? What can we get from understanding the problems of Babylon? Arrogance? Self-glorification, greed, pride, selfishness, materialism. This book is a prophecy of God's displeasure with Babylon. But it can also be an education for us if we're listening. The question is, are we listening? Are we willing to make the changes in our own lives that are needed? Now we're going to look at the second point of the exegesis, which is where it talks about, sorry, we got caught. Now, I don't know what that means to you, but I remember I was working in East Asia, and one year there was a conference that was going to be held in um, the Philippines. And I was asked, uh, as as one of the regional leaders, whether or not I'd be willing to go and represent uh, our, our body and go to this meeting. 
So we went to the Philippines for this big conference, and the conference had people from about 15 different countries. And a lot of these countries were people from Brunei and Nepal and places like that. These Christians that had come to this conference had never been outside of their country previously. They got to this big meeting, and the leader in that region had called in a special group to come in and do the music. Well, this particular group was very, very highly charismatic. Now, you've got to understand, the group that came from all these, these nationals from these little countries, they're trying to understand, now, what is it to be a Baptist Christian? And so they got all this stuff thrown at them about speaking in tongues and healing and, and doing the, uh, being slain in the Spirit and all this kind of stuff. And so some of us began to, be, to pull aside some of the ones from that region, some of the missionaries, and ask, what is going on? In our region, whoever it is that got this guy to come would get fired. Well, what's happening here? One of the ladies representing a group from the Philippines, I remember, said to me, the problem is it was our regional leader that made the request and had him come. They said, so what can we say? And I said, so this has happened before? They said, yes, it's happened before. I said, and what, what do you do about it? They said, we just have to bite our tongue and put up with it because we have tried to talk about it, but people just aren't listening who are above us. The system had gotten broken. The system was not working well. Well, we went back after the meeting. We were there for about 10 days. And we, and we had met people from all these different countries and we had talked to them individually and said, no, 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 no. How you're doing church back home is fine. You don't have to be expected to do, these church, do this just like this. This is new to us too. We, we don't, not, you know, it's just very, very interesting conversation that went on. Afterward, though, this got reported to our top leadership in the United States. And the, the, the guy who did all the invitations, the regional leader there, was told to send an apology letter. We received basically a letter that said, I want to write this letter in apology, and I'm so sorry that, uh, this, that the experience you had there was not uh, beneficial to you and of value, and I'm sorry that... You weren't basically. When by the time you finished reading it, you realized you had just read an apology for our stupidity and lack of ability to accept what he had done. The apology was not for what he had done; it was apology that we didn't like what he had done. Well, sometimes when we look at this, we I, we have to say, like when I look at this second section, chapter eighteen, verses nine to nineteen, it's basically saying, "Sorry, we got caught." Because it's describing the fact that the people that were in Babylon at that point, they were saying, oh man, this is horrible. You know, now we're beginning to get it. You know, Revelation, all of this has been going on. We've had earthquakes. We've had all kinds of things that have been happening around the world. God has been punished. He's took away the church. All these different things. And now it's in our own city. Life is bad. We're losing all of our money, all of our business. You know, this is just horrible. And I'm so sorry that this is happening to us. But they're never saying, I'm sorry for what we've done. There's not an apology of saying, God, I repent. I confess. 
See, brothers and sisters, when you want to become a Christian, it's more than just saying, gee, really I'm kind of sorry things went the way they went. To become a Christian is to become dependent on the blood of Jesus. It's to recognize that He alone can forgive your sins. Chapter 18, verse 9 says, When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. 18.10 Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. When we think of the kings of the world, who are the kings of the world? We can look at economy, we can look at power, we can look at countries. You know, I don't know who you think of as powerful in our world today. A lot of people will think about people such as Mark Zuckerberg or think about uh, maybe um, Stephen Harper or Bill Clinton or uh, Xi Jinping or somebody else. There are a lot of people who are power brokers, but ultimately the question that each one of those has to, have, has to deal with is whether or not they are married to the values of the world we're living in or whether or not they actually have ever come in contact with the values of God. Using the word adultery clearly states that this was never what God intended for His people, that they would become married to the values of this world. In a short time, they will see all that they have built based on the world's values and relationships destroyed. Because it's what they built, not what God built. What do you see them weeping over? Is it their loss of life's acquired possessions? Is it loss of friends? Is it disappointment that God is really doing what He said He was going to do in punishing adultery? What motivates how we use our time in our day. This scripture surely pushes us to evaluate what the definition of life is as far as the definition of success. 1811, the merchants, now this is a long one. 1811 says, The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linens, purple, silk, uh, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice and incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, bodies and souls of men, human trafficking, obviously a problem too. They will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your riches and splendors have vanished. Vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off terrified and they will weep and mourn. And they will cry, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple, scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought ruin. By going into the details at this point, there's no reason that this scripture had to go into that much detail. But it does describe that God is clearly aware of the values of men. God knows what our values are. Matthew 6, 19 and 21 says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust is corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. Lay for yourself up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust 
nor rust dust corrupt, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. These corrupt persons have gone against God in every way and are slaves to sin. They are slaves to success. The thing I would say to them as I say to us, be careful who we serve. We've got so much pressure from society and culture telling us to do this job, to have this career, means you're successful, means you're worthy of respect. And yet the Scripture says, make your decisions dependent on God, not based on what the world says is correct and is valuable. Our value doesn't come from whether or not we're making a high salary a low salary, whether we have good friends over here that are in some particular kind of a position that gives us credit, we have to look for success by God's definition. Chapter seven, uh, chapter 18, verse 17, it goes into the sea captains. Now this is interesting. It talks about the sea captains and their travel by ship. The sailors and all who earned their living from the sea will stand afar off. They will see the smoke of her burning they will exclaim, "What, what was, the, uh, was ever a city like this, such a great city? They will throw dust on their heads and while weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city! Where all who are the ships in the sea uh, became rich through her wealth. And again, in one hour, it says, the ruin will come. Why the special description to international travelers and ships, I do not know. But it does say that people, the point is that, that it's the same. These people had somehow ignored the earthquakes and the corruption, adultery, pornography, greed, and other things that were going on in this society in preference for dealing with their own beneficial goals. Their own selfishness, their own black heart, if you will, had taken control of their lives. So therefore, they're screaming and yelling, Whoa! Whoa! Total selfish consideration. They are hurt. They're frustrated. There's a sense of loss, loss of control, loss of direction. Don't know where they're going to go for their definition of success in the future. All of their definition for success is now gone. And so with the loss of that city, everything that they understood is gone. For our learning. Why have I chosen my career? Did I consult God? Or just self-determined where I was going and what I was going to do? Does it matter? Are there dangerous places to work? Are there environments that are unhealthy? I remember I had a good friend in Hong Kong that went to work for a company and was making great money, but they kept asking him to put money under the table for contracts. Eventually he said, you know, the great money is killing me. Because it's such a wonderful opportunity to get rich. He said, I'm so tempted to stay here, get rich, and then get out. But he said, what I'm finding out is I'm compromising every day. Every day, my values are going lower and lower and lower. It is finished. Chapter 18, verse 20 to 19, 5. 1820 says, Rejoice over her, O heavens. See, this is the change. This is the difference in view. Rejoice over, O heavens. 
Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon has been thrown down, never to be found again. The music of the harpists, musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman or, tra- or any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of the lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride, the church and Christ, will never be heard in you again. The merchants were in the world's great, see, the merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. Verse 24, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who had been killed on the earth. When I was a child, I remember me talking to my mother one day and I asked her, I said, Mom, I don't understand. Every time my father gives me a spanking, now I'm sorry, I grew up in the time when spanking was perfectly acceptable. And I know it's perfectly acceptable because my rear was red a lot of the time. Uh, I, was, I was always into something and they were always trying to teach me something. But I can remember that I asked her, I said, Mom, I don't understand. I'm the one that got the spanking and it hurts. But Dad, I've seen him several times kind of walk off and he cried. I don't understand that. Why is he crying? I should be the one crying. I'm the one in pain. You know, punishing, she explained, is not something he wants to do. He wants to see me following and doing things right. He wants to see me blessed for good behavior. He wants to see consistency because he knows it will help me in the future. You know, and he, she just described all it was about what my father wanted for me. I won't say that I fully understood it as a kid, but I can certainly remember it and understand it now. Spare the rod and spoil the child. That was something that... Um, in those days, it was a perfectly acceptable term. Note that while those on the earth are struggling with the circumstances, those in, the hell, in heaven will be celebrating. This is not a sadistic celebration saying, oh, I'm so excited, finally God is going to get them. That's not what this is about. But it is a celebration time as completion has come about. The description is one of complete devastation of all the signs of worldly success. Worldly comfort, worldly affluence. We can read and understand the situation, but whether or not it is a new Babylon, a Baghdad, Rome, New York, really doesn't matter where it is. The challenge remains the same for us in considering whether or not we can set down our own human definitions of success in favor of finding God's definition of obedience and success. I have a good friend in Dallas that is a lawyer, a dentist, and a theologian. He's a good, typical overachiever, um, being Chinese, Cantonese from Hong Kong originally. But if you ask him today, what made you a success? He would not say he's a success because he's a lawyer. He would not say he's a success because he's a theologian. He would not say he's a success because he is a dentist. He would say he's a success because of his wife, his bringing up his children in Christ, and serving God through his church. 
He and I have talked about this many times. How we define our lives and our success is important. 19.1 gives us a little twist. 19.1 to 5 is just so we'll realize things are going to get better within this story as we learn what's going on. 19.1 says, After this horrible thing, after I saw all of this judgment going on, after we see how these people still didn't seem to get it, even in the midst of having gone through all they went through throughout the book of Revelation, 19.1 says, After this I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God. Remember that from chapter 4, verse 4 as well. Who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great. God's judgment includes punishment of the unrighteous, and vindication for the faithful. It is a time for joy. As we look into chapter 19, it is a joyous time as we move forward. The Scripture that we find in 18, chapter 18 has reminded us of what extremes there can be in relating to God or denying His presence. While His prophecy is there to help us understand the inevitable future, it is also a scripture for our day. To study Revelation as a dead book of predictions is insulting to God. God has not hidden His truth from us via this book, but He has attempted through John's vision to reveal Himself. May we all appreciate the revelation that God has given us of Himself. If I had a take-home blessing for today... It would be hold on for the whole ride. And the roller coaster is the best roller coaster you've ever ridden. The point being, it's not just the beginning, it's the whole ride. I've been reading recently uh, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, uh, Ecclesiastes, some of the things that are accredited to Solomon. You know, we tend to think of Solomon as this great man of wisdom. But in fact, regardless of what great words he wrote throughout Proverbs, or whether he at least got them to uh, be brought together at that point, toward the end of his life, he became a, an idol worshiper. One who served other gods. Went in a complete different direction. What the challenge is for you and me is that we'll be consistent and that we'll ride the ride to the very last day. God wants to bless us for that faithfulness. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we come before you today as brothers and sisters in one family. We come as sinners, 
as weak individuals who sometimes are successful and sometimes are not. Father, we would ask that you would teach us how to avoid compromise in our lives. We would ask that you would teach us to truly fear you, to respect you, and obey your commands. And that we would find joy in serving you as we know that even in the last days, ultimately, you will have victory. In Jesus' name.